0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder, Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 14. We also have our notes available in the Google Drive folder if you'd like to access those either today or at a later time. Revelation chapter 14, last week we talked about the song of the 144,000, talking about the fact that even though Satan and the Antichrist have plans, the Lamb will stand victorious, Um, We see him standing victorious with his faithful army on the mountain, Mount Zion, celebrating the victory of salvation and the preservation of God's people. We talked about standing confidently last week because we are secure. We saw the the beast standing on the sand. We saw the the lamb standing upon the mountain, a a place of victory, Mount Zion is throughout Scripture. Uh, We talked about the song that was being sung and how Um, Christians are the ones who are able to sing this song because they've experienced the goodness and the salvation of God. And so, while taking the mark of the beast uh, or not taking the mark of the beast prevents you from buying and selling, um, not taking the mark of the beast allows you to sing this song, uh, which becomes far more important in the end. And then we talked about separating ourselves thoroughly uh, from the world because of our identity. Uh, We talked about being pure in our worship, being dedicated in our worship. Uh, We talked about. Um, following the lamb wherever he goes, being truthful as a reflection of the lamb as well. And so last week I talked to you and shared with you the responsibilities we have to uh, remove any attempts at immorality in our life, any attempts to be unholy in relationships with others, um, that we should cut those things off, um, that we should pursue honesty and truthfulness in our life in all aspects as well. That brings us to uh, Revelation chapter 14. Uh, verse six that says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fall and fall is Babylon, the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Our summary sentence for today. Believers have a responsibility to call others to respond to the gospel until the very end, while also remaining faithful themselves by living obediently and believing rightly, which will result in eternal rest and reward. Believers have a responsibility to call others to respond to the gospel until the very end, while also remaining faithful themselves by living obediently and believing rightly, which will result in eternal rest and reward. For our kids, Christians must share the gospel and remain obedient to God's word. We're going to see in this passage that even as the end draws near, even as uh, deception sets in, Um, there's still a proclamation of the gospel that goes forth. There's still the opportunity to turn and repent, uh, that God's grace continues to be extended to the earth dwellers. Still an opportunity to turn and to worship the creator rightly, um, which would then prevent this eternal torment that we're going to talk about. Um, And so as believers, we have a responsibility to proclaim that gospel uh, up to the very end. And in doing so, we also have a responsibility to stay faithful ourselves, to, to obey God's word, to live it out in obedience, uh, to believe rightly about Jesus. Again, uh, you know, following up from this past Wednesday where we talked about cults and um, what they believe about Jesus and how they distort a theology of Jesus, we have a responsibility to worship God rightly, and we worship God rightly by worshiping Jesus, the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture, not a distortion of, of the Jesus that many cults try to present to us. Obey the word, believe rightly about Jesus, and you'll result in eternal rest and reward. I think what we find here in this passage is uh, both a call to repentance and a call to endurance for believers. So unbelievers are being called to repentance in this chapter. Believers are being called to endurance. So you see warnings uh, and encouragement Um, If you're an unbeliever, you read this passage, man, it should strike fear in your heart that, okay, I need to pause and reflect and realize that, man, if I don't do what this says and this stuff is true, man, it has grave consequences for me. As a believer, we read this passage and say, man, if I'm even thinking about changing my decision and walking away from the faith, it has grave consequences for me if I do so. Um, this is really what sets us apart even more from the the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I mean, the conversations that I've had with people from both sects, um, they will admit and say, "Man, if you reject our teachings, in the end, you just die and you cease to exist. There just is no more of you." Um, and, and that's where I always turn it and say, "But if I'm right and you're wrong, the consequences are far more serious." You know, I, I said, "Man, I'm just, I'm just really not." Compelled to to revert my belief system to yours because if you end up being right, man, in the end I just stop existing. I was fine when I didn't exist before I was born. I, I will be certainly fine if I cease to exist beyond my death, um, and that's what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will tell you, man. If you don't believe what we believe, if you don't turn your faith to the things that we put our faith in, in the end you just stop existing. And that's not, that's not that bad. That's not that big a deal. That's not that bad. Man, for us as believers, though, the gospel that's been presented to us to reject it, man, it has grave consequences, grave consequences. And so as you read this passage, as a believer or an unbeliever, man, there's warning and there's encouragement. Warning to the unbeliever, man, you need to get things right with God. For the believer, man, keep staying right with God, right? You are on the right track. You are on the right team. This all ends up with you resting and being rewarded. Um, and so this passage is written to both sides, uh, believers and unbelievers, with warnings and encouragement. We see in this passage three angels with three messages. And again, I think these messages are not necessarily going to be proclaimed by angels flying around in the sky. Um, I think it's, it's more of a picture of the message that goes forth, uh, most likely through the church and through the proclamation of these messages through individual Christians. So let's dive right in this morning and look specifically at these three angels and the messages that they bring. First of all, we have a responsibility to mimic the first angel, which I would say is an angel of grace, and spread the gospel. We are called to mimic the first angel, an angel of grace, and spread the gospel. For our kids, we are called to share the gospel with everyone. We need to mimic that first angel and spread the gospel. It says, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I think there's some real clear things that we can find from this passage. Again, I may be wrong. Maybe there is a day when an angel is flying around all over the earth, proclaiming this message so loudly that everyone can hear it. But if I'm right, this really is meant to flow from the church. It's meant to flow from individual Christians. And I think there's some truths that we can hang our hat on in this passage that gives us um, information in, in how to go about sharing this gospel. First of all, number one, the way of salvation will always remain consistent. The way of salvation will always remain consistent. The message that this angel has is an eternal gospel. Right? People in the Old Testament aren't saved differently than people in the New Testament. People during the, the tribulation and during the time of the Antichrist aren't going to be saved any differently than we are today. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. This is how people are saved. This is how people have always been saved, right? Now, when we talk about the gospel message, that gospel message has become more clear as time has gone on, as God has continued to reveal himself, especially through prophets, through the writings of scripture, it's become more clear what God's plan is. But the gospel has always been the same, It's always been the same. It's always been about repentance of sin and putting our faith and trust in what God says. That's always been what the gospel's been about. We understand now as, as God has continued to reveal what he says, man, it's all wrapped up in Jesus. right? It's all wrapped up in the cross. It's all wrapped up in Jesus coming to be righteous for us, to forgive us of our sins, to give us the perfection that God demands. When we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in the work of Christ, we can be saved. It's the eternal gospel, the way of salvation remains consistent. Never do we have to think that God is going to allow some other way for people to be saved. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. It's always been this way, and it will always be this way moving forward. Number two, the opportunity for salvation remains available until the end. Man, this is encouraging for those of us who know people who are not believers at this point in, in time that the opportunity to accept the gospel, the opportunity for repentance, the opportunity to believe, man, it lasts until the very end. The angel says, fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Man, imagine talking to somebody in heaven who gets saved at the very, very end. I mean, who is snatched from the flames of fire, literally, because they put their faith and trust in Christ moments before Jesus returns. You could look at that and say, that's not really fair. Like they lived their whole life in sin and, and then they get like an out of jail card free at the very end and don't really have to, don't have to suffer, don't have to do anything. Man, it's real similar to the thief on the cross, right? Like the thief on the cross is dying. Like he's taking his final breaths and he looks and confesses faith and, to, uh, and trust in Jesus. and Jesus says, you're going to be with me. You're going to be with me. Don't worry about baptism. Don't worry about taking the Lord's Supper. Don't worry about reading your Bible. Don't worry about praying. Don't worry about fasting. Don't worry about any of that stuff because you're going to die here in just a little bit, and you're going to be with me forever. Man, the The gospel opportunity, man, it's all the way up until Jesus comes back. That gives us encouragement that we can continue to pray and labor for those that are closest to us that have rejected us time and time and time again Because the hour of judgment has come, but it's not yet here. Like it hasn't been initiated. Jesus hasn't come yet. And until he comes, the gospel can still be responded to. Grace is available, but man, it's certainly true that grace will uh, expire at some point. Judgment is coming. The call here is to take advantage of that delay. The way of salvation remains consistent. The opportunity for salvation remains available up until the very end. Number three, The need for salvation is true for everyone. The need for salvation is true for everyone. This angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, the way of salvation doesn't change. He proclaims it to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Man, what that communicates to me is that every nation, tribe, language, and people is infected with sin. Right? like This affirms the doctrine that we are born separated from God. We are born in iniquity. We are born in need of a Savior. If we need further clarification, we can just back up to Revelation 13, 7, when the, when the false prophet and the, and the beast are proclaiming their false message. Verse 7 of chapter 13, It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, every, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who dwell on earth. Everybody, every tribe, every nation, every language, every people falls under this deception. They're infected with sin. They need salvation. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Right? and the gospel goes forth to these people. They're infected with sin. They don't, they don't have an excuse. Right? They, don't, they don't get into to, to God's presence in a different way. They need the gospel, the eternal gospel. They're infected with sin, and the gospel goes forth to them. Again, an angel may do this, but what we see in the New Testament time and time again is angels directing God's people to go do this. Even when there's confusion in the book of Acts, right? Like Barnabas is a god fear, but doesn't understand Jesus. An angel comes to him in a vision and says, go talk to Peter, right? Peter sees a vision and he says, be prepared for a guy named Barnabas to come and get clarification about Jesus, right? The angel could have just communicated in the dreams, right? He could have just come to Barnabas and said, here's the deal. It's great what you've been doing, but you need to add this and this and this to it. You need to understand the Messiah has come, and you haven't been told that yet. But he doesn't. He says, you need to go talk to Peter. You need to go travel, get with Peter, so he can tell you what you're missing, what you're lacking. Right. So the pattern has always been that God communicates through humans to other humans about the gospel. That command is given to us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All right, that we go, we make disciples of all na- nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. That's why we're calling our Wednesday night discipleship groups Matt 28 nights, because we want to implement Matthew 28. We want to teach you everything that Christ has commanded. And it's not about making as many disciples as you can. It's about making as many disciples from, from as many nations as you can, because that's the command, to go and make disciples of all nations, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the same message is given to us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God gives that command. Why does God give that command? Why, why, does God, why is God concerned about obtaining people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue? I think it goes back to what he said in Genesis chapter 12. Remember when we studied Genesis chapter 12 and he comes to Abraham, he said, you're gonna be a blessing to all nations. You're gonna be a blessing to all nations. And we talked about the promise that was given to Abraham that through his seed, it was attached to what was promised in Genesis chapter three. The Messiah would come. He would come through Abraham, we learned in Genesis chapter 12. And that Messiah would not just be a Jewish Messiah. He would not just be a Jewish savior. He would be a savior for all. Jesus even goes so far, uh, so far as to promise that he will not come back until this has been fulfilled. Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom, the one that Jesus has been proclaiming during his ministry, the one that he's empowered his disciples to share with others, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's either gonna happen through us or through an angel. I would argue that it's going to happen through us and not through an angel, but God may choose to use an angel at the last moment as well. It will go forth to everyone before Jesus comes comes again. And we're assured that Jesus promised this will happen. Jesus equipped his disciples to make it happen, and we've already seen glimpses in Revelation that it does happen, Right? Revelation chapter 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus' blood is good for everybody. He comes to save people from everywhere. And then we skip ahead to Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Man, so not only does God promise that the gospel will go to everybody, not only does He equip His disciples to make sure that that happens, He assures us that not only is the gospel heard by all nations and tribes and tongues and peoples, that people from all those groups receive the gospel. They respond to the gospel. They are there worshiping in the end before the lamb. The way of salvation remains consistent. The opportunity for salvation remains available until the end. The need for salvation is true for everyone. And then number four, the fruit of salvation is creator worship. Someone who is truly a believer, one who puts their faith and trust in Christ, becomes one who wholeheartedly worships the creator Acts chapter 14, verse 15. This is Paul and Barnabas. It says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, these, these, this, this worship of idols, to a living God. Which God? The one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Man, Paul is echoing some of the same ideas here that John's talking about, right? He says to uh, in in Revelation, he's telling them to, to worship the Creator. The angel is saying to worship the Creator. Fear God, give him glory, worship him who made heaven and earth, the saltwater sea, and the freshwater springs of water. Worship the creator of these things. Paul does the same thing as as he's planting churches and evangelizing. He's saying, man, quit worshiping the vain things, quit worshiping the false things, and worship the creator of the universe who's made everything. Fear God, give him glory, submit to his creator rights over you. This is where I would argue and say that the angel is proclaiming an eternal gospel, but the gospel isn't necessarily this message that we read about here. This is the response to the gospel, right? Like this is the response. This is the healthy, appropriate response. When we say obey the gospel, what we mean is fear God, give him glory, and worship him. That's the response to that eternal gospel message. Unbelievers up to this point, we read about in chapter 13, have been impressed with the Antichrist power, right? Like he comes and, and he works signs and wonders and tricks and deceives them. And, and, and the unbelievers are, are mesmerized by his power, right? They're mesmerized by what he's capable of doing. Here, John, through this angel, is writing and calling unbelievers to recognize true power, creative power, right? The one who can bring into existence that which was nothing previously, this passage is also addressing our chief sin. That's failure to worship God properly. Right? We see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, right? that, that God reveals himself, his eternal power, his divine nature. It's been clearly seen in all of creation for all time. And what does Paul tell us in Romans 1? that man rejected that knowledge of God, rejected that general knowledge, and instead set up for themselves gods that they used, created things to make, and they give their affection and their attention to things that will expire, things that do not last, things that do not really exist. Romans chapter one, our our, our failure to worship God properly, we see that also in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Man, Paul shows up and tries to correct these people's worship. He says, man, you're so confused as to what to even worship that you've created a God to kind of cover your bases in case you've forgotten one God in all of your worship. Man, Paul tries to redirect their worship to the one true God who can't be bound by man's temples and can't be created by man's hands. He warns them that coming judgment is coming wrapped up in the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man who will come, giving us assurance by raising him from the dead. Our chief sin is addressed. Ecclesiastes, the the author of Ecclesiastes reminds us of our chief purpose, right? Verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 12, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So this angel, this message, the message that I believe we're to proclaim is a message of an eternal gospel that calls people to fear God, to worship him rightly, just as Paul was doing faithfully in the book of Acts, seeking to correct people's false worship and redirect them to accurate, correct worship as revealed in Scripture. We're called to mimic this. And this is is what we're supposed to be about. This is what we're supposed to be doing, mimicking that first angel and spreading the gospel. Number two, hear the second angel, an angel of doom, and reject the world. Hear the second angel, an angel of doom, and reject the world. For our kids, we are called to reject the world because God will destroy it. Because God will destroy it. We'll spend our least amount of time on this one because the least amount is said about this one. It says, Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is on the Great she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Number one, the world creates numbness and confusion with its enticements. The world creates numbness and confusion with its enticements. In the book of Hosea, chapter 4, Verse 10 says they shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. And what we find here is that Babylon has, has, given off wine, a type of drink that, that has really numbed the people to the idea that judgment is coming, like they're completely numb to it. They're also completely confused um, by the enticements that have come to them, right? They, they've lost sight of what's really true and what they're really supposed to be doing. They're in kind of a drunken stupor. Babylon has caused this She's made all the nations to drink this wine, this passion of her sexual immorality, and it's caused, them, it's caused them to become numb and confused about what is really to come. Babylon here, and this is the first time it's mentioned in the book of Revelation, it will be mentioned several more times moving forward. It's probably interesting to note that the first time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in a fallen state, right? But Babylon here is a picture of the political, the religious, and the economical opposition to God and his church really throughout time. Right? This is seen in Egypt. This is seen in literal Babylon in the Old Testament. It was seen in Rome, the Roman Empire during that time. But it's the political, the religious, and the economical opposition to God and his church. It's really the world system of evil that would cause us to ignore the fact that we're gonna, give, we're gonna have to give an account to our creator. We read about this in Thessalonians, right? That, that people are falling asleep. People are drunk. They're, 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 um, they're confused in the night, They've lost sight of the day. They don't understand what's to come. The world creates that numbness and confusion with the things that it entices us to enjoy. Number two, though, the world fails in gaining lasting victory. The world fails in gaining lasting victory. The term Babylon is used here, and we know Babylon has already fallen, as is described here. Not even just the, the Babylon of the Israelite captivity, but if you go all the way back in our Genesis study, you'll remember that the Tower of Babel, right, is where we really first understand Babylon. Genesis 11, where the Tower of Babel is constructed and it's rooted in in humanity's pride to kind of set themselves apart from God. What does God do? He comes down and confuses their languages so that they are dispersed across the, uh, the earth. Daniel chapter four, where we see that Old Testament Babylon empire uh, run by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar begins to look around and calls his his Babylon Empire great. It says in verse 30, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. We begin to see the demise of Babylon moving forward after the the pride of Nebuchadnezzar being expressed here. We also know that Rome fell eventually, all world systems will fall, including the one that we live in, right? Right? We don't, we don't think in terms of the United States being like Babylon or being like the Roman Empire. We haven't, we haven't tried to make that correlation because we don't see our nation persecuting or punishing the church like we do with Babylon and, and Rome, right? So we haven't tried to make that correlation that, that we may be living in that type of system right now. I mean, that could turn on a dime real quick, Right? Like, like our, 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 our government could shift very quickly to where it opposes Christianity and begins to persecute Christians. That could happen in, in a quick matter of time. But it's certainly true that what our government allows the people of this country to enjoy, man, could certainly be described as the type of wine that is being described here. The type of enjoyment and enticement that exists in this country that would numb you to eternal things, that would numb you to coming judgment. Man, you could easily make the correlation here that our government, our country, falls into this type of description. And it too will fall one day, right? Like Jesus isn't coming to be the president of the United States for all eternity, right? Like it's going to be a new creation, a new government, a new world. Our government will not exist in the next, right? So as much as we enjoy living here, love here, we love this country, it too will fall one day. It too will fall one day. And if we put our hope and trust in it, we will be disappointed. God will judge the world's systems and nations who give allegiance to anti Christian forces and oppose the church. So certain is the fall of future kingdoms that John uses past tense language to describe it here. It's not that Babylon will fall, it's that Bob Babylon has fallen, according to this angel. So the gospel's being presented. Unless you look to the gospel and say, you know what? I'm not going to put my hope in the gospel. I'm going to put my hope in where I live, in the government that I live under, the government that provides for me. Man, the second angel comes in and says, hey, that's going to fall. That, that, that system's going to fall. All world systems will fall. Don't put your hope there. And that brings us to our third angel, an angel that we're to respond to because he's an angel of warning. We respond to him by obeying the word. It says in verse nine, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. We respond to this third angel and obey the word. For our kids, we are called to obey the word and believe in Jesus. Two points I want to make about this angel. Number one, the threat of taking the mark is greater than the threat of not receiving it. The threat of taking the mark is greater than the threat of not receiving it. And ultimately, you have to decide which threat is is more serious. Because whichever threat you determine is more serious, it will automatically shape who you decide to worship. Right? Because in chapter 13, what's the pressure? If you don't take this mark, you can't eat, you can't drink, and you'll probably be, be killed for it. Right. So chapter thirteen says, if you don't take the mark, you'll die of starvation, you'll die of thirst. And if you don't die of those two things, we'll just kill you and you'll just die. Take the mark. Like that's the message of the Antichrist. Take the mark. What we find in chapter 14 is the threat of taking the mark. Right? We're very quick to say, okay, if you take if you don't take the mark of the beast, you'll 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 not be able to eat, you won't be able to drink, and you might get killed as a martyr. But this angel shows up and says, if you take the mark, here's what happens. If you take this mark, you may have a belly that's full, and you may have a a mouth that is is completely satisfied with drink. You're not thirsty, and you may have your life. But, man, you will drink the wine of God's wrath, and it won't be a diluted wine. It's going to be poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and you'll be tormented with fire and sulfur. In the presence of the Lamb, forever and ever that smoke goes up. There's no rest day or night, those who choose to worship the beast and receive its image. There's temporary relief if you take the mark, but eternal punishment if you take it. There's temporary relief, right? Like, you take it, you'll be able to eat, you'll be able to drink, you won't get killed for it. There's temporary relief but then there's eternal punishment if you take it. Rejection of the gospel is eternally serious. We already mentioned the fact that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would walk away from your door saying, if you don't want to believe what we say, the worst that's going to happen is that you'll cease to exist. The message here is that, man, if you don't choose to believe the gospel, you're going to have eternal consequences applied to you. The strength of God's wine is not diluted. You get his full fury. The effects of God's wine will last forever. Psalm chapter 75. Psalm chapter 75. There's there's a lot of places in the Old Testament where it talks about God's wrath. Being described like wine and it being poured out in full strength. Psalm chapter 75, verse 8: For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. What's being described here is similar to the judgment that's applied to Edom in Isaiah. These are the descendants of Esau in Isaiah chapter. 34, this again is where we see some Old Testament language uh, mirroring the Revelation language. Isaiah 34, verse 9. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. This is similar to God's judgment of other nations as well, not just Edom. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Edom, Moab and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon and the kings of the coastland across the sea. You keep reading about these people that have to drink this then you shall say to them, verse 27, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. This is this is similar uh, language that God uses in the Old Testament about judgment that he brings, that full wrath, that full fury. I think we have to see, because there's a big debate uh, amongst Christians even about the eternal nature of God's judgment here, I think we have to see the judgment in chapter 14 verses 10 and 11 as being both eternal and conscious. It has to be eternal. It has to be conscious. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time today talking about why that's right for God to do it that way. What I want you to understand is that if we try to explain away the eternality of God's judgment, the consciousness of God's judgment, if we try to take these words and make them mean something different, Be prepared that you're also affecting your eternity because the same words are used to describe the rest and relief that you get, right? We're very quick to say, oh, day and night, forever and ever, that definitely means our eternity never ends with Jesus. But we get this sympathetic heart that wants to say, oh, day and night and forever and ever, that doesn't mean eternal hell for people. Those, Those words mean something different. Man, the word clusters are the same when you describe the punishment and you describe the reward. God uses the same words when he, uses the, the, when he describes how long they last. In Revelation chapter 20, a passage that we'll get to. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the punishment that's coming to the devil. In verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the same location uh, where the devil's going to be placed. Forever and ever, day and night. Day and night means a ceaseless nature. Because in Revelation chapter 4, we get that same word cluster, When it talks about the four living creatures, it says the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. This is talking about um, the martyrs coming out of the great tribulation. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Man, I sure hope we get to serve him day and night forever and ever. I hope that's not a limited amount of time like we sometimes try to apply to the eternal punishment of the unbeliever. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Man, I sure hope that's eternal. I sure hope that's conscious because that's what I'm banking my hope in is that I get to experience this forever. Same type of words being used here in Revelation 14 about the um, bol- the unbeliever's punishment. In Revelation chapter 14, 11, we see that the unbeliever gets no rest. Smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name that's contrasted with what the believer gets in verse 13. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The threat of taking the mark is great, but the threat of not receiving it, um, is, or sorry, the threat of taking the mark is greater than the threat of not receiving that mark. We need to keep that in mind. Number two, the blessing of dying with Christ is greater than living without him. The blessing of dying with Christ is greater than living without him. We said there was temporary relief if you take the mark, but there's eternal punishment if you take it. Here we say there is temporary suffering if you align with Christ, but eternal reward if you do. Man, Scripture, Revelation particularly, doesn't try to shy away from the fact that we may suffer. We may suffer a lot as Christians, but it will be a small amount of time in comparison to the great relief and reward that is coming. There's sure safety if we follow the Lamb. Rest will come. Eternal punishment will be avoided and suffering will cease in the end. Suffering will never cease for the persecutors. Right? You're gonna suffer either way. You're either gonna suffer now for a temporary amount of time and then be rewarded and rest for all of eternity or you will find rest and, and comfort and, and whatever that you can in the world right now and then suffer for eternity. Blessed are those who die in the Lord this angel tells us. And it's real similar to what we find in First Thessalonians 4. Remember when that church was, conf- was concerned and confused? What happens to these people that are dying before Jesus comes back? What does Paul say? No disadvantage, right? Maybe even a, an advantage in that they get their glorified bodies first when Jesus comes back, but certainly no disadvantage for those um, who die before Jesus returns. Blessed are those who Blessed are those who die in the Lord. There's a lot of beatitudes in Revelation. We've only seen one other. That was back in Revelation 1.3. Blessed are the people who read and study and proclaim this book, right? There's blessing that comes from studying Revelation. The second beatitude that we will see now is that there is blessing that comes from dying and being a Christian. Dying and being a Christian brings great blessing. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Man, stay obedient, keep believing in Jesus, be faithful to him, worship him as the creator, entrust your soul to him. You may suffer now, but rest and reward will come in the future. All right, let's go back to Revelation 14 and wrap it up. Verse 12, here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. There's blessing that comes from dying in the Lord. There's rest that comes down the road. But for now, we have a call to endure, to keep the commandments of God and to keep our faith in Jesus. And so that leads us into our application. Number one, obey the word. Number two, keep our faith in Jesus. And I wanna expound on those a little bit. Being obedient to God's word is certainly described in Scripture as, a, as an indicator of being a Christian. John eight thirty one, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And we're called to keep the commandments of God, and the the good thing is is that God sees us keeping his commandments, right? Because it says when we die, our deeds go with us, right? Like they're not lost, they're not missed. We talked about this when we talked about um, just overcoming weariness in our life. We saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the end of the whole resurrection passage, the hope of the resurrection that we have because of Jesus' resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain because they go with us. Our deeds go with us. God sees them, God remembers them, and God will commend us for them. I put in my notes, our deeds mean something eternally. Matthew 25, 21 talks about us being welcomed into the presence of God and him saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? Second Corinthians 5, 10 talks about us being judged by our works, being uh, rewarded for the good things that we do. Man, so that, that left me this morning kind of stepping back and saying, okay, what are some of the, the commands of God that, that I'm striving to obey that would kind of show as fruit that I'm enduring in the faith, that, that, that I am a true believer? Because here's the thing, if, if, if somebody can identify where you're not being obedient to God's commands, man, burden of proof falls on you to show that you're a Christian at that point. Because what Scripture says is if you're a Christian, you obey the commands of God, and they're not burdensome commands. Right? Like they're steadily becoming more of a natural way of living, not something that you're forced to do, right? Like you're not having the law held over you and told you have to do these things. Instead, there's a change in mindset where it's like, man, I want to do these things. I get to do these things. Why would I not do these things? Right? So I began to list out just some of the things that I think, man, these things, these things should be true of Christians. Like these things describe Christians. Man, the first thing I wrote down is sexual purity, because we've seen it so much in the book of Revelation if sexual purity does not describe you, man, the burden of proof certainly falls upon you to show why in the world that that, that you're a Christian. Because everything else in Scripture says, man, that is not true of a believer, right? Like, that that describes Babylon and her sexual immorality, that wine, that, that drinking of that wine and being wrapped up in it. Man, it just... Boggles my mind when, when, when I see on social media the type of sexual impurity that exists in the lives of people who call themselves Christians. It just boggles my mind, right? Like people who are, who are, um, who are, who are, who are having affairs, people who are living with their boyfriends and girlfriends and, and, and still saying that they worship Jesus and then they go to church and they're believers. I'm not saying that that can't be true. I'm just saying the burden of proof falls upon that person because scripture would not say that to be true of them. It would not say it to be true of them. That sexual purity describes a believer. I wrote down honesty, truthfulness. We've seen that in Revelation. Man, that describes a Christian. Describes a Christian. Lauren and I were joking this morning and she was getting ready. She was asking me about her makeup. She's like, this is this too much? And I was like, no, I like it. And I was like, and you know I would tell you otherwise because I've always been faithful to tell Lauren when I don't like something. Like she'll buy something new and I've just learned, man, it's just safer to say I don't really like that. Like, I, I just don't. Um, and so I told her, and she's like, nope, you're right. Like, I appreciate that about you. And I made the joke, and I said, you know what? I'm just trying to be a truthful guy because that's what Scripture tells me to be. If I'm a Christian, that I live in honesty. And so I said, I'm trying to cultivate an environment of truthfulness here that, that I am an honest individual because Scripture describes believers that way, right? Sexual purity, honesty. I put down kindness slash servanthood. This goes into what Jesus says the greatest commandments are, worshiping God rightly and and loving him and loving others. Man, if I'm not a kind person, if I'm not the type of person that wants to serve other people, I think the burden of responsibility falls on me to prove that I'm a Christian because that's supposed to be a natural fruit of being a believer. Man, I'm kind to others. I love others. I desire to serve others. I wrote down obedience to authority. And these all can find their root in the Ten Commandments, right, because... The Ten Commandments tell us to be obedient to our parents. New Testament goes even further to say, be obedient to the leaders that are placed over you. Man, I have to submit myself to government even if I don't agree with the government all the time. I have to submit myself to a boss even if I don't agree with that boss all the time. If I start running my mouth and complaining and causing dissension, man, burden of responsibility falls on me to prove that I'm a Christian because a Christian obeys the authorities that are placed over them. And if I deviate from that, I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and do some of these things. I'm just saying, man, you're you're deviating from the norm. You're deviating from the norm because the norm is if you're a believer, you obey the commands of God according to 1 John. I wrote down correct worship as my last one. So I was trying to come up with five. I put sexual purity, honesty, kindness, obedience to authority, correct worship because I can lump a bunch of things under that. Right, so I can get away with five and still say a lot of things in that, that last one. Right, Worshiping one God, no idols, worshiping, through, worshiping him through communion with prayer and Bible study, like knowing my God through his word. Man, all of us should be pursuing those five commands right there. Sexual purity, honesty, kindness, obedience to authority, worshiping God properly. This passage here in Revelation tells us that we're, if we're going to endure It's certainly tied to our obedience. Not earning our salvation, not justifying our salvation as though God pays us or or rewards us because we've been faithful in such a way that, that takes us away from the sufficiency of Christ's work. But man, our obedience is meant to reveal to others that we're truly a believer, that we've truly responded to this gospel, that we do fear God, that we do worship our creator that we do give him glory. Number two, keep faith in Jesus. That's right doctrine about Jesus and that we trust in his plans, that we trust Jesus with our lives. Revelation chapter two, verse 13. Going back to the church at Pergamum, it says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Man, this church clung to the name of Jesus, clung to right theology of Jesus. They did not deny the name of Jesus. Man, if we want to make it to the end, we've got to be obedient to God's word, and we have to keep believing in Jesus. I want to close with one passage of Scripture that takes us away from Revelation, and it's more clear in what's being discussed. That's 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This church was remaining obedient. Their faith in Jesus was growing. Their love for others was increasing despite their persecutions verse 5 This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus right like this is the second coming of Jesus And it comes upon those who did not believe that that eternal gospel message that went forth to everybody. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Right, Those of us who have been giving glory to God, when he comes we continue to give him glory. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our family worship questions for this week. Number one, what commands of God are the hardest for you to obey and why? Number two, what commands of God are the easiest for you to obey and why? I told you that we should steadily be growing in the idea that God's commands are not burdensome, right? Like I recognize that part of the sanctification process is us coming under the belief that God's commands are good for us right? And some of those we've already kind of mastered. Like, we know these things are good for us, right? Like, a lot of us understand, man, it is good for me to gather with the people of God, and that's not hard for us to do. It's an easy thing for us to do. A lot of us look forward to the times that we get to gather, right? But there's still other things that may still be hard for us to do. Like, we do them because we know we're supposed to, but man, we're still fleshing it out in our mind as to why we should do this um, and and really fleshing it out as to, to really wanting to do that. And it may be helpful to step back and say, okay, why are some of the things that are easy for me to obey easy? And if we can get to the reasoning of that, it may help us in applying some of those reasons to the things that are hard for us to obey about God's commands right now. So I think it could be good discussion, especially for some of our older kids um, in our families to kind of work through God's commands. What's hard about obeying God? What's easy about obeying God? And why is that the case for both of those things? Let's pray together and then Tyson's gonna come and lead us in one more song. God, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for the gospel, the eternal way that you save people. God, we're thankful that that gospel is for everyone. We're thankful that that gospel continues to be um, available up until the very end when you come back. God, that gives us encouragement for those that we know that are not yet saved. God, we're thankful that even in that last hour, you're gonna be saving people and redeeming people because of the work of Jesus. God, help us to be faithful to proclaim it. Help us not to wait for an angel to do it for us. God, help us to mimic that message of that angel and proclaim it to people that we work with, people that we live with, people that we love. God, help us to to keep in mind that the world around us is going to collapse and it's going to fall. Help us not to put our trust and faith in it. God, help us to realize that any Uh, any temporary suffering pales in comparison to the eternal suffering that's coming for those that take the mark of the beast and worship his image. God, I pray that as times may get tougher for us in the future, that we we would be resolved to stay obedient to your word, that we would cling to the name of Jesus and keep our faith and trust in him. God, help us to see that reward is coming. Help us to see that even if we die, if we die aligned with you, that we are blessed greatly in that death. God, give us uh, just a deeper understanding of your word and the commands of your word and help us to obey them, not just in outward duty alone. God, I pray that you would give us just intense, deep, heartfelt conviction to obey you, realizing that it's not only what we're called to do, but it's it's what we should do. And, and it's it's, um, it's something that we should want to do and help us to see the reasonings behind those things. That your commands are good for us. They're not burdensome god help us to see past the um the the delusion that that would be presented to us that the things that you call us to do are, are burdensome pray that our kids would be able to see that that example that we set that our kids would desire to follow you wherever you take them because they see us living out our obedience in a way that's not burdensome we ask these things in jesus name